This episode is sponsored by a company I've used for well over a decade, and that is 511. I wore their uniforms back in Anaheim, California, and have used their products ever since. From their incredibly strong yet light footwear to their cut uniforms for both male and female responders, I found them hands down the best workwear in all the departments that I've worked for. Outside of the fire service, I use their luggage for everything and I travel a lot. And they are also now sponsoring the 7X team as we embark around the world on the Human Performance Project. We have Murph coming up in May. And again, I bought their plate carrier. I ended up buying real ballistic plates rather than the fake weight plates. And that has been my ride or die through Murph the last few years as well. But one area I want to talk about that I haven't in previous sponsorship spots is their brick and mortar element. They were predominantly an online company up till more recently, but now they are approaching 100 stores all over the US. My local store is here in Gainesville, Florida, and I've been multiple times. And the discounts you see online are applied also in the stores. So as I mentioned, 511 is offering you 15% off every purchase that you make. But I do want to say, more often than not, they have an even deeper discount, especially around holiday times. In fact, if you're listening to this in the months of April or May, 511 Days is coming up. Between May 9th and May 16th, you will get 20% off all gear and apparel. And that applies both online and in-store. But if you use the code SHIELD15, that's shield one five you will get 15% off your order or in the stores every time you make a purchase. And if you want to hear more about 511, who they stand for and who works with them, listen to episode 580 of Behind the Shield podcast with 511 Regional Director, Will Ayers. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Paige Figgy. Now, for any of you out there that recognize the term CBD, Paige and her daughter Charlotte are the origin story. So as you will hear in this incredible conversation, at only a few months old, Charlotte started developing seizures and was ultimately diagnosed with Dravet syndrome. By four years old, after trying a gamut of pharmaceuticals, Charlotte was on life support with only days to live. As a last-ditch attempt, Paige had been exploring the world of plant medicine and found the cannabinoids in the hemp plant not only pulled her daughter from life support, but ultimately gave her nine years of healthy living. So we discuss a host of topics, from Paige's own service in fire and water rescue, the role of a military spouse, Charlotte's diagnosis and illness, how hemp not only helped Charlotte but thousands of other children, debunking the myths around CBD, the certification that can prove both efficacy and safety in workplace drug testing, how this brand has ultimately been trusted by Major League Baseball, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 750 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Paige Figgy. Enjoy. 
Well, Paige, I want to start by saying, firstly, I hope that you're okay after the snowstorm that you had yesterday. And secondly, to welcome you on the Behind the Shield podcast. Thank you. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you uh, giving this a voice. So based on my last comment, obviously, you're not here in Florida. Where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I'm in Colorado. And yeah, we had a, another freak spring storm. So all the plants start budding and and then it snows seven inches. And and so the, the power goes out, the trees go down. <laughs> but I'm in Colorado. I've lived here since I was 17 years old. Um, for most of my life, I've been here. Well, I want to start at the very beginning. Obviously, your daughter has been a very powerful story within itself, but let's start your kind of origin story. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Sure. I'm from Connecticut. So I was born in Hartford, Connecticut, and um, I'm the youngest of three girls. And when I graduated high school, I really wanted to go out in the mo- to the mountains and live out West and climb and experience that. So I, I went out to, to Fort Collins, Colorado. I went to CSU, Colorado State, and I've just stayed out here. I was a military wife for a while, so I floated around the country, but mainly I've been in Colorado most of my life and it's where I belong. It's where, you know, it's maybe not where I'm from, but it's where I belong. Now, what did your parents do? Um, they were in various things, banking, finance, that sort of thing. So not at all what I'm what I'm working on right now. (laughs) And then what about the household that you grew up in? Was there an element of a more holistic approach to wellness or diet at that point? No, not whatsoever. You know, conservative, Connecticut, old-fashioned, traditional, Western medicine. Um, And I think that's what happens is you kind of pendulum back and forth, right? You either become your what you're from, your environment, or you pendulum back the other way. So I probably pendulum to this Western, Western state, kind of holistic, crunchy, granola, <laughs> Colorado thing. Um, but I always was rooted in in science and in tradition. And so that, I think that pair of those two things together is where I ended up landing. And that's what worked for, for me to become an advocate for this topic we're going to discuss today. So you mentioned about climbing as you were, when you were still in Connecticut, what were some of the sports and athletics that you were doing then? Right. So there's no, I wasn't rock climbing and mountain climbing in Connecticut. I was, I played field hockey, lacrosse, and um, I was planning, I had a scholarship and I was planning to go to college for, for sports. And, and that was, that was not in my mother's plan. She said, you can't play sports in college. You have to go for academics. And that's when I applied to this one, one off school way out West thinking, you know, just, let's just see what happens. And when I got accepted into CSU, I just said, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. If I can't play sports, I'll just go out West and, and that's what I'm going to do. And so I actually came out here and started some of the sports teams like as clubs at the, at the college. So I still was playing lacrosse and field hockey um, and climbing and doing all these new sort of independent sports. Now, what about career aspirations? You get in there because of the love of sport. What are you hoping to do as that progresses through? I was sports med. I was an exercise physiology major thinking I was going to go into physical therapy. And then I was thinking maybe I'll go into med school. I didn't want to be a professional student, but I was really involved. I was really curious about the science and, and the physical body and sports definitely all rooted in, in physiology and sports medicine. So, you know, I just, I still am. And I think it's, I think the whole, that whole genre is really fascinating and, and very important. So you talk about it as if it's past tense. So did you actually get to that point or did something kind of make you deviate? 
nope, I, uh, I, I fell in love and moved up into the mountains and really just spent a lot of time climbing. And I'm glad, I'm glad I didn't go down that path because I, you know, I just, I don't know. And I'm, and I'm raising my kids in a, in a sort of a different way because of that. And I, I would have been in, in debt, like major six figure debt. And I probably wouldn't have used it because it would have been, I would have been working in what rehab with knee surgeries and that sort of thing. It wasn't going to be what I really saw myself doing like heavy in the sports in the professional sports world. <clears throat> it would, would be what I wanted working with young athletes. It would have been old rehab, you know, you know, just kind of like that slog. And when you talk to people, it's kind of, it's a burnout job, right? It, it's, I think back in the nineties, when I graduated high school, it was, you know, you're looking at, I remember these people would come in to the, to the school and, and, and coach you and advise you on what, what subject, what thing you should pursue in college. And it was like, what are the top three paying college majors. And I remember PT, physical therapy was up there, actuarial scientist and, you know, with the least amount of school for the most amount of money. And that really wasn't, that doesn't interest me. That wasn't why I was going into it, but that, you know, you just have to pick something. So I was volunteering in that space since I think I was 11, you know, cherry striping and hospital burn units. And, and I think I burned myself out a little too soon. So I dropped out of college moved up to the national park in Estes Park, Colorado, and just started businesses and, and was living in the mountains. I was backcountry skiing. I was climbing mountains and just kind of living the dream, really. The first relationship that wasn't Charlotte's father or that was? So yeah, Charlotte's father was my first relationship. And it's a funny story. So he ended up going into the military. So that's where I was a special forces wife. Um, but but yeah, we he was he was the father of my three kids. Okay, so let's kind of explore the the military marriage dynamic for a moment. Then, so I've had a lot of people on the show, obviously a lot of operators themselves, and and some of the spouses as well. As you've come from, you know, as you said, kind of uh, safe suburban Connecticut, and then now you found yourself in this military family with this dynamic. What was your experience within that? The pros and the cons. Well, even before military, before he joined the the army, we were both um, we were both in a fire department, on a volunteer fire department in Nestus Park, because it's only it was only volunteer back then, and we were divers. I was a rescue diver on a volunteer fire department, but um, I think they went to a paid situation. It was just so busy. There's a lot of water and rivers that sort of thing. So that's how I like dip my toe in this in this arena. <laughs> and then he joined the military late in life. He was actually. Um, probably one of the older guys that went special forces. I don't know the the record and, you know, we don't, I hate superlatives, but I think he might've been one of the oldest guys that, that went through special forces and, and made it, you know, he went through selection and all that stuff, but, but, you know, it wasn't that outrageous. We were just, I don't know, we're like independent kind of go-getters starting businesses and, and like mountain people, you know, but, but it was really fun. It was really gratifying, fun work to be on the, on the fire department for a couple of years there and like tough work. And a lot of the stuff wasn't, wasn't rescue, wasn't dive rescue at all. It was just recovery, like body recovery. And, um, and you might, I just remember thinking, you know, at the time, like what this, is this necessary? This is a lot of time, a lot of training, you know, an intensive equipment intensive sport, which is everything I did was some equipment intensive sport. And it was, you know, it was really gratifying to see that the families that needed closure after they had a death or a drowning. And it was really important to them. I think I can't imagine not having, you know, 
to, to be able to see your child or your loved one after they die and just, they're just out there somewhere. So we were doing a lot of body recovery and it was, and I, I've heard from the families, it was really meaningful. So even at times when you feel like, what am I doing? Does this even matter? Is this even changing anything? It, it absolutely does. Well, what are uh, one or two stories that, that you kind of would consider a career call in the time in first response? I think um, one of the stories was a, a young kid. So they were on vacation. He slipped off a rock and went under instantly. And it was really, um, it was really learning for, for everyone there. We, we learned a lot and what not to do. And, and it was just, it was really tragic. He was just a young kid. He was right there within arm's length of his dad. His dad was, I believe, I think he was, he was like FBI. He was in that sort of, you know, realm of, of, of work. And it was just tragic. It was just really tragic to see. I think one of the worst things that can happen is the loss of a child. And, and yeah, I just, I, I just think, that was life-changing for me. Like this is ab- absolutely a valuable thing. It's understaffed. Um, it's a burnout job We're doing it for free and it's, and it's time consuming. It's expensive. All we did was train, train, train. And, um, and so that, that one call really made me value and realize this is an important thing. And, and that service mindset um, that a lot of people don't have, like, what's it worth to me? Or is it worth my time? That service mindset really, it paid off and I never really left that, you know, that arena. And I, I really got it. I got the whole service thing. And I've spent my life since then really just trying to serve and help other people with no recognition. You're not looking for kudos or a pat on the back or money. You're just doing it because it's meaningful. Now, from the mental health stand, uh, standpoint, you know, you have these traumatic calls and then you transition out. What was your own personal perspective of that? That's interesting. So I, um, I was actually, I mean, who knows? We all think we're fine. I was fine after that call. I think I had a healthy understanding. I talked to the parents and I, you know, from a mother's perspective, it was difficult, but I remember the fire department who was involved, not even just the dive team, but the whole fire department went through therapy. They went through counseling and they were a train wreck, you know, these big tough guys who go on calls multiple times a day were just absolutely devastated over this particular call. I just remember it was, it was a tough one. And it was, it was kind of like, it was eye-opening for me, you know, because I, and that goes again, the stigma of firefighters is like, you got to be tough. You're not any tougher than any average person. We're all just human beings, right? We just, you just have to stomach a lot more. And so I saw that, like, that we're all human. It's okay. In fact, it was required that they had counseling. And so that was very interesting to me. That whole tough guy thing is, um, I don't know. I think it can be dangerous. Yeah, it's something I talk about a lot. There's there's masculinity, which I consider the yin and the yang, because anyone who became, for example, a, a police officer, a firefighter, a member of the military, if you look deep in their heart, there's, there's service, there's selflessness, there's compassion, there's kindness for most of us. And then you get into this profession, all of a sudden you're painted as this two-dimensional, I'm using air quotes, hero. None of us would call ourselves that. And it does, it redefines the way that you that you think you're supposed to act. And we disregard that very soft, you know, almost feminine quality that brings you know, men and women into this profession in the first place. So I think we're finally now getting, you know, alpha males just to, to totally caricature coming out saying no you know i this is my struggle this is you know this is me crying this is whatever because 
with so many of us are raised on this kind of, you know, Hollywood John Wayne bullshit instead of what a man or a woman actually is, which is, you know, if you're in your dive gear and you're under the water, you're trying to find that child. You're not thinking about, rain, you know, unicorns and kittens at that moment. But you also have to give yourself and other people compassion to process that call after as well. That's probably why I fared so well, because I'm a female. You know, I'm a tough, I'm a tough female, but I'm a female. So I'm allowed a different leeway. Right. Like to your point. And so it's probably I never really thought about that. It's probably why I'm not tougher than any of these guys who are there's no it's not a competition, but I probably was was allowed more. I don't know, to process it, a lot more emotion to process it or something. And um, and I didn't have to put up that wall. That's very detrimental to healing. And so that's interesting. Never really thought about it like that. But there was a lot of calls, but that was one that was one that was like, huh, it opened my eye. Like, we don't have to all be tough. We'll deal with it later and just do the work and we'll, we'll, we'll handle it later. And we should expect to, there to be something to handle. Absolutely. Well, you talked about doing that for a couple of years. So what came after that? So then my husband joined the army and we moved to, uh, to, to Georgia, Fort Benning, and then we moved to Fort Bragg. And my son was born in North Carolina at Fort Bragg. And that was our first child, Max. And so we left Colorado with the hopes that we get stationed back here. But just like, who knows what's going to happen next? Threw it up in the air, needed a change. And I was just in that supporting role, a new mother in that supporting role. But we weren't young. We weren't young parents. We had like a whole sort of marriage and lifetime and relationship together. And we decided later in our, in our life to, to have kids. So anyways, it was like, I felt more mature. I don't know. I can't even imagine having a a child in my teens, you know, or early twenties. I had a whole, I had this great whole interesting life before I had kids. And I'm really grateful for that. I'm not saying there's one right way, but for me, that wouldn't have worked if I had, if I had not, you know, dipped my toe in, in, in the life experiences before I had children, because my children, at least, that was a whole, you know, very intensive situation with my daughter, <clears throat> with my twins. And so I would have missed out on certain things. And I think there's, you know, you have regrets or you have, you know, I don't know. I would have questioned having them real young. So I'm really thankful that I got to have this whole these whole experiences beforehand. And I think it prepared me for what was to come. Now, did your husband deploy overseas? Yeah, he did. He went to Iraq. And then when he got out of the military, he got out when my, after my twin girls were born soon after Maxwell, he, um, he had to decide to get out because we were in the hospital so much. We'll get into that. I'm getting ahead of it, but he ended up working in as a contractor for the majority of his life. After the army, he actually worked overseas he was deployed much, much more frequently out of the army as a military contractor. So how did you deal with the dynamic of him being overseas? And then talk to me also about the transition back. That can be jarring sometimes for the dynamic. You know, the the, the husband or the wife has been home, you know, almost like a single parent for a long time. You know, the other person comes back into the life and, and sometimes that can be heads knocking or sometimes it can be more fluid depending on that relationship. That's interesting you say that. That's not usually what people talk about. But yeah, I, I'm a pretty independent woman and um, I'm fine. I'm a loner. I'm independent. I had I had it. You know, I had everything under control. Um, but yeah, having them come back, I think my main focus was just 
just um, facilitating their relationship because like every time they come back, they have to kind of meet their kids again and they're a different age. You have to start over. And so just really making sure that it was a healthy, healthy time, healthy platform, making sure they had, they had a, you know, a great relationship because that's tough on kids too. And so instead of focusing on that, this is hard for you and you're a victim and you poor, you poor kids, just, this is our normal life. This is how it is. And, and your dad's doing this great thing for the country and just, just kind of support. I was like in a supporting role. And, um, but yeah, you're right. It's tough. It's tough when they come back because you have everything that you want it. Right. I have, I cook how I want it. We have a schedule how we want it and it throws a weird wrench in there. So I just really tried to focus on like a path, a positive path forward. So you mentioned the twins. So first you have, you know, the the first child, then then you have two little babies. So talk to me about that birth and then, you know, the the, the first couple of years. So yeah, so we Max was born in North Carolina. We he got assigned to Colorado to 10th group. So we were like, we pulled some strings for that. <laughs> and we went, we got sent back to Colorado, which was awesome because that's where we wanted to be. I didn't want to be in Kentucky, you know, and his, his base is the Middle East. So, you know, it's gonna be like a heavy deployment rotation at, at, at war, at a time of war. And so we got to Colorado. It was North Africa and Europe <clears throat> and um, was his was his area. And and then I had the twins. I had twin girls soon after we moved back to Colorado and we lived in a different city. So while I had lived in Colorado since I was 17, I didn't know anybody in Colorado Springs. So I was like a brand new mother with a kid pregnant with twins and had no network. I had no family, no social network. And again, like I'm a loner. It's fine. I figured it out. And I started joining these groups. We started mom's groups and we started to, you know, gather people because you start to realize it's kind of low, like the military wife thing is kind of lonely. And then, and then just really immersing myself in the, in the town, because I knew the kids were going to need, I was, I was planning on homeschooling my kids and that, and that's what I did. Um, but I knew they were going to need like a social network. So I really started to plug in while he deployed and, and get ready for the twins birth. So as far as health wise, talk to me about Charlotte as an infant and then, you know, what changed as she started progressing through the months? Yeah. So everything was healthy pregnancy. They were born on their due date, twin girls, everything was awesome. And it was like the longest my, this doctor had ever let twins go <laughs> and, um, everything was fine for three months, just a normal, healthy, incredibly chaotic time. And at three months old, I was hosting this mom group at my house for people who, who wear their children. You wear like we made baby carriers and warm because with twins, if you're breastfeeding, you know, you can't, you can't do, you need your arms free. So we would tie, tie a baby on my back. Like I'm living in India. Right. <laughs> and I'm dealing with one on the front. I have my son and I'm cooking and I'm, my husband's deployed and it was chaotic. So I threw this, these parties and we were, people were coming over and it was like five minutes before this, this brunch. And I'm upstairs, Matt, my husband, Matt is changing Charlotte, getting her ready, getting her dressed. And he just yells up. And again, like we were both first responders. So we like, there's a sound at tone of someone's voice when you know something isn't right. And he just shouted up, um, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Come down here. So he actually, he ran her upstairs to me at this little three month old baby and laid her on the bed and she's having a seizure. So she's blue. She had been seizing for a couple minutes. The seat we called 911. We we're dealing with it. We we're doing first, uh, first aid. 
she seized for 30 minutes. So a 30 minute long tonic clonic, they're called, you know, these used to be called grand mal seizures. So she's unconscious. She's, she's um, convulsing. She's not breathing. And we have nine one one. but I just remember feeling like slow motion, very calm, sort of took the emotion, like took myself as her mother out of the situation. And, you know, you just go into that, that training mode where you're like, okay, this is, we just got to deal with this. She might die. She looks like she's dying. She looked like she was dead other than she was convulsing. And it was very long. You know, you, in the movies, seizures are not typically with children, with babies, 30 minutes long. That is very unusual. She didn't have a fever. It wasn't a febrile seizure. Um, so the ambulance got there, we went to the hospital and they do the million dollar workup. I call it they do all the tests. They do the MRI. They do everything. Scans, nothing. They don't find. I was praying that they would find a, a mass or a tumor. You know, okay, surgery. She has a brain tumor. We'll do surgery because she wasn't sick. There's nothing wrong with her, and so they couldn't find anything. And we went home the next day, and and then she started seizing once a week. So she started having these seizures once a week. I remember the long. They were all thirty minutes or longer. The longest was four and a half hours. And so when, when you're seizing for that long, you're not breathing properly. So you're on life support. You're every one of these seizures is a, you know, rushing her to the hospital. They don't know what to do. They never say anything like it. When you start to see the, you know, the, the 911, the, the paramedics and the ICU staff, it's kind of panicking, you know, that this is not normal. You know, I'm a new mother, so I don't know, <laughs> like kids seize, right? This can't be, this isn't that abnormal. They're like, no, this is this is probably, you know, brace yourself. This is probably going to be something major. This is, this is not normal. And so of course I start doing research and digging online and not research. I'm not a scientist, but you know, I start digging around for information and there's no type of pediatric epilepsy where status seizures, that's a seizure longer than 20 minutes is the, is the, is the normal, you know, is the, is the presenting thing. So it was like, there's a mysterious, you know, mysterious illness with no, with nothing on her scans. So we had no idea. So she started seizing more frequently. Then she started having them every day. Then she started having them every hour. And so she was at that point losing all of her skills. She, you know, the little that she had, she's a newborn baby. She really started to, to fall behind. Right. And so I have her twin sister. They're fraternal twins. They're not identical. So Chase is is neurotypical. She, everything she's progressing. And Charlotte just starts kind of falling behind on those on those goal posts. You know, they're supposed to be walking at this age, you're supposed to be talking. And and so it was kind of like it's causing brain damage. And her now her scans are looking like she has brain damage at this point, but still we have no answers. And we didn't really, I think she was two and a half years old when we finally did this genetic testing, I had to fly her to Chicago to the specialist and we did blood tests and, and um, they found the source of her seizure disorder, which I already knew what it was because I had been, you know, Googling, <laughs> don't ever Google your medical condition, they say, right. But in this case that it was actually helpful. So we got the results and it was Dravet syndrome. So Dravet syndrome is, was relatively new. In fact, Charlotte Dravet, the name of the doctor was named after, was still alive and practicing in France. So that's how new this, this disease was. It was extremely rare. Um, it was life-limiting, so she's not going to survive it. And it's untreatable. So there's no, no medical treatment. There's no pharmaceutical treatment for it. So it was like, 
you know, the doctor's like, you should sit down, everyone get everyone on the phone. We're going to tell you this. I'm like, it's okay. I already know this is what it is. I'm a practical person. And, and so it was, it was actually like a relief to have an answer as devastating. Like it's a word, it's a world's worst kind of epilepsy. And it, it was kind of, you know, in my mind, as odd as it may sound, it was relieving to have something because I think being in limbo was worse to not know what the hell was going on. So walk me through the the four years, what she endured pharma- pharmacologically, you know, procedure-wise, and then also let's talk about the cost. I mean, there must have been an immense cost to to that as well. Right. So remember, my husband had he had gotten out of the military, and this was devastatingly right when the real estate thing, right before the real estate crash, right? The economy collapsed in 2008. He had just gotten out. And the reason he got out is we were just in the hospital too much. He, he's like, I really think I need to be here. I don't know how you're going to do this. I'm in the hospital. She's tied to the bed on a, on a, on a ventilator, right? I have a twin tied on my back and a baby carrier and my son's rifling through the medical waste. And I'm trying to, you know, (laughs) keep it lively. My husband's deployed and I'm trying to keep everyone's spirits up. I'm trying to homeschool my son and, and, and deal with this. It it was just incredibly difficult. And I'm not much of a complainer, but my husband was, you know, I'm tough. I'm like, we're fine. We're fine. We got this. Just it's okay. Cause stressing someone out who's overseas and his incredibly difficult job that he, he couldn't talk about. I couldn't know where he was. And then whenever he got a satellite phone to call, you just hear like air raid sirens. They're getting shot at. They're getting shelled. So got to (laughs) go. So it was like this just really stressful sort of situation. But he decided to get out and then the market collapsed. And so we had no insurance at that point because he couldn't get a job. And so it was we lost our TRICARE our, our insurance. And so, yeah, every I, I don't remember. I remember adding this up, but every 911 trip, um, not even flight for life, but just every ambulance ride was was just astronomically expensive and and bankruptcy. We had to file bankruptcy. It was like it was like whatever. I don't that wasn't even a factor. It was like we just I'll pay it later. I'll pay it all back later. We just we have to keep this kid. We have to try everything we can and and go down this lane. But it was like everything went wrong all at the same time and financially. And it was very difficult on our marriage. I mean, it was just difficult. And, um, and yeah, so that was, that was, (laughs) that was a tough time. And that's why he went, he ended up going back overseas and and working as a contractor because that was the job. Like what kind of experience do you have after, you know, a couple of years in special forces, who's going to hire you after your military experience, your intensive, incredible military experience. It's not really a hireable thing, unfortunately, oddly. And so that's why they go get hired by Blackwater and all these companies. So that's what he did. And he was, like I said, he was deployed more after when he was out of the military than while he was in. Well, I mean, the reason I ask that is I've had many, many conversations. I come from a country where, yes, the taxes are higher, but if something like this happens, you'd not, you know, the first thing you're not asked for when you walk into a hospital is a social security number. You're asked what's wrong with your child and then you're, you're helped. And so, you know, we're going to get into obviously the prevention side and the holistic side as well. But this is what's so nauseating about a profit-based healthcare system is you've got these people that are being diagnosed with cancer that just been hit by a bus, you know, just had Dravet syndrome, whatever it is. 
And the last thing I need to be worrying about is can we pay for this? You know, so I think it's an important thing to underline, as you mentioned, you know, bankruptcy and about the worst financial crisis you can have layered on top of all these other things from a husband and wife who have served this country in a number of ways already. Yeah. And isn't the, I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but the number one cause of bankruptcy is medical bills, probably, or it's one or two. It's got to be close. And that was certainly our, our case, but yeah, the, the drugs to treat this untreatable epilepsy are very expensive and hospital trips are very not, you know, ambulance trips are very expensive. So I started to, I started to just drive her myself in the car and you can't put a, a seizing person um, recumbent in a car seat <clears throat> and drive 20 minutes to the hospital because they're now aspirating. They're li- they're leaning back and it's the worst thing to do. So that's all. That's all I had to do. I would just drive her myself because it became so expensive to deal with. So talk to me about the the kind of pharmacological journey and the the benefits or lack thereof of these chemicals that you were being given or she was being given. So the the pharmacy the pharmaceutical options for pediatric epilepsy at that time and mostly still <clears throat> are all used off label. They're not drugs for epilepsy. They haven't been studied for and never been studied on a child for the use of epilepsy. They're off label, so they were created for another disease state and never been tested on children. And Every doctor we had, we had many, many different neurologists and epileptologists. They all admitted, like, unfortunately, the brain study of the brain is witchcraft. We really have no idea. We don't understand it. We have no idea how it works, not physiologically, not even emotionally. And we were were ill-equipped to treat this disease that we're told is untreatable, but we have to try. So the drugs are like, like phenobarbital, I think at the time was like the oldest seizure drug used, which isn't really reassuring. You know, you want to go into the hospital. I remember her first doctor. He's such a nice guy. And I fired him after one visit, but he was really, really nice. But I wanted like a killer. You know, I wanted someone like, get the hell out of my way. I got this. And I remember going to this guy and saying, okay, finally, we've been to the hospital a ton. We finally have a doctor, doctor. And, and he said, okay, sit down. Here are the three, you know, one, two, three drugs, line them up. And which one do you want to try? And I'm like, what the hell do you mean? What do you, what do you tell me? What, what, what's going to treat the status seizures every day, every hour? There's not a drug for this. He's like, well, you get to pick. He's like, this one's the oldest drug <clears throat> with the most information. This one has the least amount of medical side effects. And this one has the most medical side effects, but the least psychological, emotional side effects. So I picked the one with the least right in the middle with the least amount of side effects, thinking medical side effects, thinking this one seems the safest, but what it, what I didn't realize is it had the most, um, had, it totally destroyed her personality. So she's no longer, she's like, um, they call it's Kepra was the drug and it's, they call it Kep rage. And so they're just not even themselves anymore there. She would rip off her her fingernails till they were pouring blood and her toenails. She was just angry and uncomfortable, but she had no medical side effects. It didn't work. Her seizures remained, (laughs) but we had to deal with all those, all those side effects, which then we had to treat the side effects, which looked like autism um, with other drugs that weren't for were used off label. So you just end up in this cascade 
of a, of a, of a shit show, you know, of, of stuff. And each thing has its own side effects. And we're talking about a baby, an infant. So I don't even really know her and I don't know what her personality is. And the doctors are like, well, babies cry and babies, you know, sometimes they don't eat and sometimes they miss their, their milestones. So you're just being an irrational parent, you know, but I mean, (laughs) I knew her enough to know one day she was Charlotte and the next day she was, you know, Rosemary's baby. And it, and it was like day and night. And so we, we kill that drug and I try another drug and each one had a, had a slew. Like I try this drug and her seizures would increase, just rapidly increase another drug. She started having a seizure where she just com- completely turned blue, stopped breathing. And I'd have to do CPR. Um, well, uh, you know, the only time I took an ambulance is when I'm, when I'm doing chest compressions on her and this drug, she stopped eating. So we had to get a a surgical feeding tube. This drug, she completely stopped sleeping. But most of those side effects are like <clears throat> poo-pooed by the doctor because they don't have to, they send you home with this drug, check that box, but they don't have to deal with what this looks like for you at home. And it was, it was, um, it was eye-opening. It was very eye-opening to see. Okay, no one has a clue. Like you're asking me to pick what to give her. You have n- there's no one has a clue. So from day one of her first doctor visit, I realized I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to be her advocate. You know, you can't sit back even without insurance. You can't just sit back and trust Western medicine. You have to do some digging, which I think that throws a wrench in the, in the doctor's, you know, cog because they just want to do it for you. They don't want to deal with a difficult parent who wants to get involved but obviously this isn't working. So I really, at that point, at the first doctor's visit appointment, I realized I really had to get involved if I wanted to help my kid. Well, I mean, as a paramedic, I saw over and over again, some of you know, the drugs that you mentioned, you know, patients that were just taking everything that they were told. You know, I watched some of these people, we, you know, we ran on for years. So I watched their personality change and then we'll get into it. But some people like, you know, knew and ran on, they they transitioned to a holistic alternative and then we hardly ever saw them. But what was really maddening is people would say they were pseudo seizures. And the fact that you would flop around in, you know, on 120 degree asphalt in the middle of the Florida sun for attention, you know, was, was disgusting. But this is the problem. I think they all, you need to take your meds. You're not compliant with your meds. Like, yeah, or maybe they're shit. Maybe they just don't work. And as you said, especially when you start reverse engineering and learning the origin story of this and the lack of efficacy, and then, as you said, it's not even being used the way it's prescribed or meant to be used. Now you are far from north. You know, you're way out left field. And and to to say, oh, no, you still need a trust, like I think that's completely deviating from that do no harm you know the vow that we make to to do the best for the patient and that could be with words it could be with alternative treatments or it could be with some of the incredible meds that do work but i find those are normally in emergency medicine in anesthesia you know in some of these areas where absolutely hands down that's a great medication but when it comes to treating chronic disease over and over and over again if you look at the prevention side and you look into, you know, ancient wisdom, like the, 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 the medicine that's been around for a long time, traditional medicine in its true form, not what we call traditional medicine, 
you know, that's where we have to let the egos in medicine go and, and start looking for other places. Because if we keep fooling ourselves that these, for example, seizure meds are working or that your hypertension med or your cholesterol med is going to make you live longer, that's smoke and mirrors. That's not. That's a Band-Aid. Yeah. And, and like you said, we're treating these things. We're not curing them. You're not going to get paid to, and I don't want to start a whole conspiracy conversation because I do think there's good doctors and good scientists looking for solutions, but it is one of those careers that they're not going to have me as a customer if they fix my problem. But, um, but yeah, it was, it was, it was really outrageous to to really, we had never had medical, I had never had medical problems in my life. I didn't even have a doctor. We were very healthy. And so it was my first foray into, into medicine, you know, uh, and I think what is, I heard, I read some quote, it was like, you don't really, you don't have real problems until you have health problems. And it's like, you know, you, you might think you've got real, real problems, financial problems or marriage problems, but until you have a health problem and then maybe even until it's your kid that's suffering, having a health problem, like a major medical life or death daily, life or death daily health problem, you really don't have any other problems. Like it's hard for me to listen to people's problems because I've, you know, stomached some, I've lost a bit of empathy, was chipped away over the years watching my kid, you know, suffering, just physically suffering. And, um, and so, yeah, so I get it, but I don't want to get too conspiracy about the, about Western medicine, but I am with you on all of that. I just, I just, um, I just don't want to think the worst of people, you know, and I do, I just, all I'm doing is forging ahead and finding other solutions. If I don't like this, instead of sitting around complaining about it, I'm going to find another solution. Absolutely. I think that's the thing. It's, it's not conspiracy. It's just when you have, a system built on profit, there's clearly a pull towards disease. If you have a system, for example, some of these countries where they have healthcare, there's a desire to make people as healthy as possible so you don't drain the taxpayer's money. You know what I mean? Yep. So I think it's not so much a conspiracy, but some people absolutely make a huge amount of money off the disease in, in the US, for example. So I don't think that's a conspiracy. I think that's just a truth that's been push down that we need to pull out into the, the daylight. And until we, I don't know how to solve this, but until we solve that litigious nature of this country, that's the system we have. And if you don't go through this rigid 10 year phase three trial, you're going to be sued because it could possibly be dangerous and someone's going to abuse the system. And that's why we have so many lawyers in this country and doctors are afraid of lawsuits and they're bound by <clears throat> those contracts working for that hospital to cover their ass and not really be um, able to pivot and be innovative because that's that's the nature of our country. I don't know how to solve that, but I know that there's other solutions and sometimes they come from nature and that's not unheard of and there's ways to sort this out. So she starts seizing as an infant. Now she's four years old. Talk to me about where she is as far as palliative care. And then let's walk through Israel and, and your journey into plant medicine. At four years old, Charlotte was <clears throat> had reached the end of her life. She had reached the end of her pharmaceutical options. We had tried every drug multiple times. And because I had to prove that it for sure didn't work. And I, most of those were used in a cocktail of multiple meds. So who knows what's doing what in your liver getting metabolized. So I went through multiple trials of, of these drugs. I, I don't remember. We were over a dozen. We were probably at 18, 18 meds we had tried. And 
we were told there's nothing left to do. At that point, she's seizing every half hour. Remember, her seizures are about a half an hour long. And so she's just seizing 24 hours a day. We put her in hospice. We signed a do not resuscitate and brought her home. And so she was in home hospice. My living room was a medical unit. Um, she was on oxygen. She was unconscious. She couldn't swallow. She couldn't. She had a feeding tube. And I just fed and watered her and gave her air and kept her body alive and just watched her seize. And she'd have like two minutes, five minutes, an hour of post-dictal recovery where she just wasn't seizing, but she's post-dictal. So she's not, you know, you, she had no, no emotion, no feeling, no nothing. And, um, and then the the next seizure would start again. And, um, and so, you know, it was like, okay, I guess that's it. But I'm a mom and I'm, I'm like, there's gotta be something we haven't tried. I mean, we were already trying things out of the box. We were trying diets. I know, I know the ketogenic diet's like a, a fad thing. It's been a thing and it's a working diet for, for reasons for fitness or weight loss. But at the time and, and the way we were using it on Charlotte was, it was a high medical situation. And it actually was, I would say one of the worst, it worked. It, it did help some of her seizures before it stopped working, but it caused the most medical side effects. So she had the bones of a 99 year old woman. She had osteopenia and she'd, you know, she, I'd, I'd practice walking with her whenever I could, when I would do physical therapy with her while she was unconscious, we would, her femur would break because she was weak. She had her weak, had weakened her bones. So it was like, you know, these things are not benign. So I, I know everyone's on keto, but you have to be careful. We were in a very, very high ratio keto, a medical keto, but, but I mean, everything has, a, has its side effects. Um, but we have, we were trying all kinds of stuff. So it wasn't outrageous to me to, to try the next, this next thing that I tried. And I was, um, I wasn't really hopeful that I would find something to help Charlotte. So when I, when I started down this, this road that we're going to talk about, it really wasn't for Charlotte. She wasn't going to live long enough to see the benefit of the things I was going to do research on. Um, but I figured there's got to be some other kids like her that might benefit from, from this work I'm doing. And I was really diligent and I was very, um, I, I categorized everything. I charted everything I did. And, and I shared all of these things and for every different therapy over all these four years, I shared all of that with everyone. So this is no different. It wasn't like outrageous. What was outrageous was the source of the next, this next treatment. So I was reading from uh, researchers in Israel. So they, they breed rodents to, to be born with epilepsy. And that's what they test drugs on in the phase two parts of these trials. They were, they were using, um, they were using lab rats. And they said they had found what was likely the next 10 or 20 years was like the next anti-epilepsy drug. And it came from cannabidiol, which is an extract from the hemp plant. So it's a non-intoxicating, we call it CBD, but it wasn't called that back then. And um, so I thought, huh, I live in Colorado at the time in 2010, this is a medical marijuana state. I'm like, I could probably find some, some hemp. And if I can't, I could build a laboratory to extract this. So I was, I hired some translators. We called Israel. I talked to these researchers and I wrote down all their data that they had been amassing on the rodents. They shared it with me. There were people in in France and Brazil also that were doing similar and seeing similar things, the very powerful anti-convulsant. Then it worked. It just had never been tried in humans and it wasn't legal. (laughs) It was a schedule one substance in 2010. 
And I thought, well, I'm, I'm here in Colorado. I'm going to call, I'm going to call everybody I can to find someone who can make this for me or who has this for me. No one had even heard of it. So I was calling thousands of people. And most of these people today still know me 13 years later. And they remember that call and they remember hearing Charlotte's seizing. Her, her seizures were loud. Like you're screaming. And she's not screaming. It's just the air being compressed. But they remember hearing this, this horrible, horrible haunting sound. And like, who is this person calling me? This is in a, a child. I'm not going to get involved with this. A, a kid's never done this before. And I'm not giving marijuana to a kid. And I'm like, well, it's not marijuana. I have a clinical trial that I wrote for her, for her, <clears throat> for a human. And this is exactly what I'm looking for. I don't have $15 million to open a laboratory and, and an extraction you know, process. I don't have, I don't even have a plant to extract this from. So I called thousands of people. I said, just before you hang up on me, just give me five phone numbers and I'm going to call those people. And that's what I did. And I called every single person. And one of those people I called, and most of them thought this was outrageous. This is very fringe back then. One of those people showed up on my doorstep and, and knew what I was talking about. He knew what cannabidiol was. He knew how to pronounce it. And he had the solution for, for me. And he just came over one night. I shared my data and he shared what he was doing. And um, that was Joel Stanley, one of the Stanley brothers. There's seven Stanley brothers. So they all have a name starting with Jay. At the time, they were running a medical marijuana business. For started with their uncle who had cancer. And they were just giving free cannabis away to cancer patients. And Joel was messing around in this in this like a pharmaceutical grade greenhouse and laboratory was messing around. Like if you can get THC this high in a plant, what else is in the plant? Maybe there's other stuff that we can study. So he was breeding plants to be high in cannabidiol, CBD and other things. And he had the exact ratioed plant that I was looking for that no one had heard of, had never been done and it didn't exist and so I'm thinking, I got to talk, I had to talk this guy into helping me because this is, I'm like, here, hold, hold Charlotte for a second. I'm going to go <laughs> show you what I'm looking for. And, you know, he saw his first seizure. Um, he met Charlotte and he was probably terrified because, you know, we're all under the, the threat of getting arrested for this. Um, pediatrics was written into the medical marijuana law and epilepsy was written they had the foresight to do that, but no one had used this in a pediatric epilepsy situation. So I had the attorney generals on the phone. I had her epileptologist, multiple around the country, governor. I had all these people on phone calls telling them what I'm doing. This is what I want to try. It's non-intoxicating because the THC is low enough to be less than 0.3%. It's low enough to be considered hemp. We're making apple juice in a pharmaceutical grade greenhouse from out growing apple trees and, and trying to make this benign apple juice, right? It was like this expensive, tedious, ridiculous situation. But they said, finally, after a long time of, of convincing, they said, yes, we'll allow you to do it. CPS, Child Protective Services, law enforcement was involved. And I was under the threat of having my kid removed from my home. Like, who's going to raise this kid? Like, who's going to medic? Like, who's going to take care of this kid? She needs a doctor full time, 24 seven. So I was concerned, but I also was like, they're not going to take her out of this house. I'm not doing anything wrong. I felt like I was in the right. I was in within the law. It was just sort of, it was just outrageous to, to them because it hadn't been done before. That's all. So let's kind of reverse engineer that a little bit. Now, knowing what you know, because I've talked about 
for example, drug prohibition, which is not even what we're talking about. We're talking about hemp. But even when you reverse engineer drug prohibition, you realize that it was it was really founded on job justification and racism and some really negative things and never really for the benefit of the country. And eight years later, here we have a border with murders and gangs on the streets. So clearly an epic failure, but that's an entire other conversation. Talk to me about hemp specifically. What was it doing positively and then what changed in, in the law that took it from a benign plant to a Schedule One drug that a mother could almost be arrested and have a child taken away for having? Well, I, I, at that point, I hadn't even given it to her yet. So I'm fighting this fight. I don't even know why. I've just I've been called relentless. Maybe it's just because I'm relentless, <laughs> belligerent. I don't know. Um, I just was like, if I start down this path. And I feel like it's the right thing. And the data lines up. I'm going to continue down it. It's going to help somebody. I hadn't even tried it on her. I don't even know why I was going through these hoops because one, it wasn't going to work. This is like tree bark extract, like essence of lavender. Like this isn't going to do anything. This kid's on like the heavy heart stopping benzodiazepine. Like it's not going to work, but how interesting. And let's check it out. But I don't even know why I went. I didn't have to go down this road. I don't even know why. I think it's just, I don't know. I think I'm just relentless, like, right, like obnoxiously relentless. Um, we we formulated this oil and and to the exact specifications for my clinical trial that I wrote, right? Put it in her port in her stomach and she stopped seizing. So she didn't have a seizure for seven days after her first dose, not a single seizure. And that's that's 50 seizures a day. That was 350 seizures a week on average that she didn't have. And so it did, it ended up working on her. It stopped her, her seizures. Again, I didn't think it would work. And I certainly didn't think she would live to, to, to see that first dose. <clears throat> she probably had a couple of weeks left to live at that point in her life. Um, so, so what happened was Yes, I'm giving my kid now a working therapy. It's obviously working. Nothing had touched her seizures in her life. Now I'm giving her a schedule one substance. So I can't leave the state of Colorado. I can't, I can't get this across state lines. I, I can't study this. I cannot study this because it's a schedule one drug. And so what do we do? Like, what do I do next? What do I do next? And what we decided to do was to tell the story with a doctor. And we chose Dr. Sanjay Gupta with CNN. It took me 18 months to turn down all this, all these like weed stories, um, all these pot mom sensationalist media stories, because I wasn't going to let them fuck this up and tell it wrong. And so I wanted, so Sanjay's a, a neurosurgeon and he agreed to tell the story. I was very nervous because he was anti-cannabis uh, publicly. But he's like, I'll check it out. So he flew out here. He met us and he he they filmed it. And um, and he literally we had to turn the cameras off so he could cry. He has daughters and he just sat there and, and, and was crying like, oh, my God. I mean, I shared everything with him. He He got to see this kid running. She's running and talking and eating and living a normal life and not seizing. <laughs> from what it was before. And he got to just see the whole, I tried to just package the whole thing and show him I'm not crazy. This is what has happened. And now there's about a thousand other Charlottes that have come here for this. And, 
And so he changed his mind. That's when Sanjay Gupta changed his mind on weed and he saw the whole thing. And we're really good friends and he's filming nine of these documentaries. So back up, what happened when we told that CNN, it was called Weed. Weed One was the first one. Um, people packed their cars. It was like a Sunday night prime time <clears throat> was when it dropped, is when it aired. People saw it, packed their car. They had never seen a child seize on on television, on national television. They said that, that that looks like my kid. We have no treatment. I'm going to Colorado. And they had to decide, do I stay in Texas? Do I pass a law in Texas? Do I break the law? Go to Colorado, get it, go back to Texas. They didn't have a lot of choices, but it was illegal to cross state lines. And it didn't exist anywhere else, but here in Colorado, this magical, <laughs> ridiculously simple hemp treatment. So they moved here and they had to get residency. And most of those families, many of those families lived in my house. It was like a hotel. And I would just give them 48 hours tops, um, help them get on their feet, <clears throat> give them a place to live and say, there's another family coming. So you have to, you have to go find a place, but just like a soft landing spot and just to help them. And um, it became this weird, crazy movement. And I got to firsthand give these kids their first dose. And I got to see this, this, this scenario that I got to witness with my own daughter, I got to see that, you know, hundreds of hundreds of other people didn't work for everybody. This isn't a cure. Most of these kids have brain damage and they can't come off their other drugs. They're addicted to them. And so it didn't, it wasn't a cure, cure all, but I got to see hundreds of other kids with a very similar, sometimes even more, even more efficacious situation. It was like, okay, once we reached a hundred people, I, I was like, maybe this is really working. You know, I didn't really believe it until I saw other people's kids. And, um, and so it started this whole movement and, and that's where, like, that's basically how the whole thing, the origin of this whole thing started was, was this cool, you know, grassroots thing, um, with parents fighting for their kids. So you, there's no problem prescribing opiates and all kinds of other benzos and all these different families that are being tried on the child, which are known to have horrendous side effects, which are known, for example, opiates to take hundreds of thousands of lives at the moment. But hemp is a Schedule One drug. Was it lumped in with drug prohibition? Was it the paper companies? Another story we hear. Like, what? How did this plant even become so demonized? You know, whenever it was decades ago. Yeah, I mean, there there is a deep history and people disagree on it. But like you said, it was racism. <clears throat> it was um, other competing countries. And it was just it was the, the whole the whole law enforcement reform problem and putting these putting people in prison who are a different color over drugs who are harming nobody. You can argue they're harming themselves by by getting intoxicated, but they're harming not harming society, not harming anybody but themselves. And they're in jail for this. And hemp got lumped in to this, this, this thing with marijuana. And, um, and so I, I, I knew what needed to be done because we were being laughed at in the hospital. Like, this is crazy. You're crazy. I'm like, well, just, you don't have to study it. You don't have to agree, but can you just chart this? Can you just put this in Charlotte's medical chart and write it like chart what we're doing so it's on the record and they wouldn't even do that they thought we were crazy they thought we were like marijuana activists and god bless them 
the marijuana advocates because this would this law wouldn't have existed. This medical marijuana law wouldn't have existed in Colorado for, if not for them. But to lump a, a hemp user to, to the incredible success, a child who cannot be faking this, there's no placebo effect with a with an unconscious end of life child, right? Like I don't, maybe you can argue that there could be a placebo effect, but, but this is, this is an anti-convulsant. It's an anti-inflammatory and that's how it works in your brain. Likely an anti-inflammatory, like we use aspirin and Advil. It works in that same mechanism in the brain. It's not that outrageous. They're studying it. It's going to be the next seizure drug, but we were these crazy pot moms. Um, Charlotte's better at this time. So she's walking, running, eating. She's going to school, I'd put her on the school bus. She'd pack, I'd pack her, her, her box of lunch, walk down the driveway and she'd hop on the school bus alone and go to school. So I started going back to those, we called them, the, the media called them medical hemp refugees, the people who moved here from other countries and other states. I started going back to those states and countries and to change their law. And we started changing these CBD, making these CBD as much as the state would allow. Some went full medical marijuana, as much as they would allow as fast as possible to create access. And we changed the law in, in half the country really, really fast. And then we went to Washington, D.C. and asked them to do it. Because what I needed for the doctors to take this seriously was we needed data. We needed research. First, we needed to educate people. Then we needed science. You can't do science on a Schedule One drug, right? And then we needed to, to change the legislation. So in order to have the like, utopian where you can have access and you can, you can find this, buy it. It doesn't need to be marijuana. It doesn't need to be pharmaceutical only. It can exist as a dietary supplement. The only way to do that is to do research, prove it's safe, and then change the legislation to provide access. And so that's what I've just started doing. And that's what I'm still doing 13 years later. So I've taken CBD for six-ish years now. Um, I had Dr. Gregory Smith on the show, and we, we talked about that before. Uh, he was a pain manager, or is a pain management physician in LA, and found immense success with CBD. I had Dr. Bonnie Goldstein on the show. She's basically talked about your work and applied that to her patients, again, with, with great success. But I've watched in the very short time that I've been in this world, and literally as a consumer, that's it, um, and someone who's, who's curious about it and wants to bring it to my population, the kind of open door initially and then the slamming shut again. And these, you know, you can't sell it online. You can't do this. You can't do that. Um, of course, and we're going to get into that, there needs to be oversight. There needs to be standards and, you know, efficacy and certifications. But what I was seeing, and then when I kind of delved into the research a little bit, it seemed to be very obvious. There's a lot of companies that are probably very threatened by the holistic healing potential of plant medicine. So what was the resistance that you started to see as you started kind of bringing this, these stories, plural, of the amazing um, impact that this particular CBD, these cannabinoids were having on these children, did you start getting pushbacks from some larger entities that didn't want that in the world. Right. So one of my <clears throat> more, I'm not going to say I regret this. I want to say it's a naive moment, but I actually don't regret this was I shared the data that I had amassed with a pharmaceutical company in England that was studying this as the next drug. So that's how it was going to go. It was going to, it was going to go. It's called Epidiolex and they were making a CBD 
drug. Now, pharmaceutical has to be a single compound isolated. What I was giving Charlotte what we were finding was efficacious was the whole plant. So it's the entire plant in a very exact amount of ratios, grown a very precise way, extracted a very precise way, tested in a laboratory by a third party, the entire process, many, many times through the process. So it's, it's done like a pharmaceutical, um, actually higher, almost like a higher standard, but it isn't one single compound. It isn't just CBD, but there's a company that's just CBD making a drug. And I shared this data, I shared her dosing, I shared what we were seeing and to help race this drug through the FDA process, which can be like 10 or 15 years easily to get it on the shelves. We, I helped them thinking I want these people, myself included, parents to have another tool in their toolbox, people who want it covered by insurance, right? What's the harm in that? <laughs> and that's where like, maybe I was a bit naive thinking more, the more the merrier. And then as I started to go lobby, at state capitals in different countries. And in Washington, I started to see the pharmaceutical industry lobbying against uh, having CBD be a dietary supplement. Because how in the heck are they going to compete with an agricultural crop that is descheduled when they have to go through all these hoops to get their drug to market? Very expensive, very, very tedious, which I respect and I understand. This is different. This is a supplement and it's, it's not any, it's not that less stringent. It just has more stuff in there, right? It has more compounds in there. We don't isolate things out. So yeah, I, I saw, I started to see the pharmaceutical industry lobbying and they're very well-funded lobbying against me because they're just, they have to protect their assets. So things like this is, could be dangerous. You can't have this floating around in the market. You have to buy this as a drug only, and to give you a number, an idea of that number of what this is worth to this company, the, the British company was just sold to an Irish company for $7.2 billion. And so they don't, and this is the, this is the main thing that they make, this one drug. And so the drug's obviously not worth $7.2 billion. What that's worth is patents and the patents that they have on this, but that's what we're at. Like little old me in Washington is up against pharma. The people I helped, the people I helped get their drug to market, sell the company and make $7 billion are now lobbying against people having access to this. Well, since Charlotte started, there's 45 million Amer just Americans that take a daily dose of CBD it's from patient zero. So you're not going to stuff that back in the tube, right? The market has self-identified that this must work. People take that day. That's daily. I'm sure that's an underestimate. And so that's what they're trying to, that's what they're up against. Well, my whole household does for a start, you know, and I'll just, just kind of relay. I started taking mine after knee surgery, it was prescribed opiates and I took them for, it was the first script, I think it was only seven days. And then I happened to have just got some CBD from Dr. Smith and I tore up the second prescription. I'm like, I don't need this anymore. This is ridiculous. Um, and so that worked incredibly well for me. It helps my sleep. Um, my wife has anxiety and she's in med school. So, you know, she's, she's uh, an older student in med school and, uh, I've just watched it work so well for her. My son had um, kind of, it wasn't technically asthma, but it was bronchospasms. He would wheeze very badly. And when he takes his daily, it never happens. So I was seeing this. And again, I had no skin in the game. I didn't come into CBD going, this has to work. I went in going, okay, I've heard someone explain it. 
all right, prove it, you know. So by far, you know, it was no placebo for us. Um, my dog, it's kind of hard to get a placebo effect from a canine, you know. So I was watching all these success stories. Um, but when you talk to me about the company wanting to make a pharmaceutical of this, it kind of uh, is, is, it happens over and over again in history. You have something that's natural that you can find in botanicals that you can reproduce, as you said, under stringent um, uh, parameters to make sure that you have that purity and that efficacy. You don't need to spend millions and millions and millions to turn it into a pill. And this is what nauseates me, is all that wasted money. And then ultimately, as you said, the word patent. To me, I hear someone who basically said, I want all the money. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take all this research and I'm going to make this mine. And that way you can't have it anymore unless you pay me 20 times the price that you would have for a tincture. So I don't know what your perspective is. I didn't want to put you on the spot. But that when I hear someone saying, I'm going to take something natural and turn it into a pharmaceutical, immediately I'm thinking, well, you want monopoly on that, on that thing that's actually making a difference in the world. And you're not going to win. I'm not going to, I'm not foolish to think I'm going to win against a pharmaceutical company. I'm not, I'm not, I have no skin in this game. I don't sell anything just so we're clear. I don't make and I don't sell CBD oil. Um, but I believe deeply. I saw firsthand. I know too much. I can't unsee what I've seen. And I believe in this and I believe this is worthwhile. So I, in order to go up against these companies, I have to make this a profitable, we have to be proud of this industry in this country. We have to make it profitable because we want innovation. We want competition, right? It's America. And so in order to do that, I have to lobby. I have to go up against them in Washington, but I can't go up against them financially. And so if I can get these laws passed and I have not failed yet, I've been undefeated in doing this. I've never lost um, I'm working with the FDA. I'm working, I'm up against pharmaceutical and, uh, and, you know, as long as they put a bit of fear, whoever has the most lobbyists in a person's ear is going to win. But what I have, cause I don't have those things. I have science and logic, right? Like I I'm, on, I'm in the right. <laughs> and so I believe that this can exist in this lane and pharmaceutical can also exist and be profitable. And I think that they all can exist and we can we can help people. And this is just an alternative alternative solution that came from nature. And I don't think that's too outrageous a thing. So so I I see it, I get it. They paid this money, they have to see it back. Um, so you're not gonna win there. You just have to make it a profitable industry. And you have to go and it starts with education. And so that's how I spend my time is in Washington now working to pass a bill that so that CBD is a dietary supplement and we'll pass it this year. We're, we're hoping to have this done by December. Now, what about on the farming side? You know, the farm bill again can be viewed in a number of ways. What are the pros and cons or what, what's the resistance or, you know, reception that you're getting when it comes to the agriculture side of this? Sure. So, so the first early bills, they actually named them after my daughter is the first federal bill was in 2015. And that bill did two things. It descheduled CBD. It removed it from the definition of marijuana, right? It's no longer a schedule one substance, just completely descheduled. And the second part of those early bills was have it be regulated as a dietary supplement by the FDA. The farm bill could only take care of one of those things. The farm bill took care of the agricultural component. It could deschedule CBD, 
take it out of the definition of marijuana. This is obviously not marijuana. This shouldn't be a scheduled substance at all. And they could handle that. That's an agricultural jurisdiction. The second part is an FDA dietary supplement could not go in a farm bill. So while everyone's talking about do, dealing with CBD regulation in this year's farm bill, it's up for renewal. They did what they could in 2018. They did half of half of what I've been fighting for in 2018. And this is just that second half. This language is the same. I have not changed my tune in 13 years. Just have this be regulated by the FDA. And I believe they would have handled that back then if the farm bill was the, the vehicle to handle that. But it's not. So there's a bill that right now is a standalone bill, H.R. 1629. So H.R. 1629 is, is obviously not big enough or sexy enough of a bill to pass on its own. It's going to have to go in on something else. But the farm bill, I don't believe that that's the vessel or they would have done this when, when it was doable way back in 18. So it's not going to go there. And you don't want your bill to go in the farm bill and then sink and be a vote pusher, you know, and, 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 and hurt the farm bill. So this is going in a, in a different way. People are going, are fighting for this in the farm bill. They're fighting for hemp agricultural, that fight. That's not my fight. I'm not working on the farm bill. I'm working with the FDA and I'm working with representative Griffith. So as this kind of, you know, opens up and you talk about 2015, Charlotte's got her own bill now, her own law. Now, from you know, through my eyes, just kind of roughly when I started seeing CBD coming in myself, and then you know understanding the cannabinoid system and all these other areas that that make you realize, oh, okay, as you said, this is a supplement. You're bolstering a system that's literally in the human body. Um, now you have some great, great actors in this space trying to forge forward and bring great products to people, and then you have you know the other side of the spectrum. So. Talk to me about that tidal wave after that and, and then how you're pushing for regulation so people know that if they take a particular product, they know it's going to be effective and they know it's going to be safe. Sure. So, and, and that was that last part was critical. And it's why I'm still relevant is how rigid I needed this to be, how clean I needed this to be done for a dying kid. Um, I needed to have these standards of operation. It was um, almost to the level of a of a brand name pharmaceutical. It needed to be grown a certain way. So hemp is a is a phytoremedial crop. So they plant this at Chernobyl. They plant it to clean up brownfields. It cleans the soil. It's a very it'll just leach everything into the soil. So when the, there's a train crash and there's toxic chemicals, they'll, they'll plant hemp and there's other phytoremedial crops. They'll plant hemp, for example, and it cleans the soil. The danger there is if you're not careful how you're growing it, and then you're, you're concentrating this down into heavy doses, and then you're ingesting this as a health product, it could be dangerous. It could be heavy metals in it if farmers are cautious. So in the time since 2010 that I started with this, there's now, like I said, 45 million Americans take it every day, 4,000, almost 4,000 brands um, are making CBD products. There's probably a handful, a small handful that are operating as dietary supplements already. They don't have to, but they're so clean. They're, they're doing it so perfectly organic and the way they test it, they have NSF certifications. And they're doing it so clean that they're pre preparing that this will this bill will pass. It'll be a dietary supplement. They already are living there. They're applying to the they've applied over the years to the FDA to get dietary supplement regulation on their product, um, and were denied or ignored. Um, 
And then the other 3000, whatever companies, you know, there's some, there's some dubious stuff, right? But my, so I started the coalition for access now that's a 501 C4. And that's what we are. That's a platform that we're pushing 1629. And so the coalition for access now is a consumer based organization in Washington. So I don't, I don't profess to to represent the industry. I am not the industry. I'm I'm representing the consumers, those 45 million human beings, the firefighters, the veterans, your grandmother. Um, and yes, the smallest percentage of people using this are kids with epilepsy, right? That was the initial population. It was the only people using this, and now it's the smallest. They're still using it, but now we have to we have to speak to athletes and veterans and a different population of people, they are taking this more as a health product, right? A health supplement. And when you get involved in the athletic, when the, in the professional athletes, they, as well as everybody, even just me, I care what I'm eating. I care what I'm consuming in my body. And if I'm paying money and I'm, I'm hoping this helps my health and improves my life, I want it to be clean and I want it to be done a certain way. So my presence here fighting for this is sort of reflective of how I gave this to Charlotte and how healthy and clean and cautious I needed it to be. And I feel that that is necessary. There should be clarity and truth in labeling. There should be third-party testing at the very least, right? And there should be adverse event reporting. And all those things are taken care of under the dietary supplement framework. And so that would, while my goal is not to is not to hurt 3000 companies. They'll either have to clean up how they're doing this. They'll learn about how to do it more cleanly. We want competition out there, right? All I want is safe access for these consumers that I represent. So I'm not trying to shut down an industry. I'm not, my job isn't to broaden the industry. My job is not the industry at all. And, and what I hear in Washington, I spend a lot of time on the Hill is they want to hear from the consumers. And so because this is like on the shelf and people think this is a no biggie legal thing, they don't fight for their access. I do. They don't call in and they don't fight for their access because it exists. But there is a threat that this possibly may not exist very soon if we don't pass some sort of regulation, because I don't know how long we can op- we can <laughs> expect to operate with 4,000 companies selling who knows what. And who knows if they're testing it? You shouldn't be testing your own product. You should be shipping it out to a, you know, a, a, a third party laboratory. And companies can't afford to do that. So they're making shortcuts, I'm sure. It's, a, it's all a matter of time until, you know, in the absence of, of proper action, it's just a matter of time until someone is injured and something bad happens. So one of my sponsors is Thorn. Um, the supplement company and the reason why I think they're amazing firstly unbeknownst to most people they are actually the supplement of choice for the UFC and CrossFit and pretty much all the large sporting organizations but for my population not only is the efficacy but it's the NSF it's the the ability to know that you're going to take protein or you know whatever particular um, product that you use and you are not going to then go take a workplace drug test and fail. And if you actually look into the world of supplementation, you can literally import powder from China, put a James's Swole Mix 2000 sticker on the outside, and then resell it. So that efficacy and that trust is very important to me. Now, you mentioned the Stanley Brothers. I know that you ended up lending the name Charlotte's Web because you know, they're their um, uh, 
participation in this entire saving of your beautiful daughter's life and extending her her lifespan by a long, long time. I actually totally independent. This is even why I'm having this conversation. I knew of the story, but I was doing research looking for that same level of efficacy for my fellow first responders. Now, I'm out of the uniform now, so I don't have to worry about the drug testing, but so many people do. And in all honesty, it terrifies them. So the NSF, the certification that, that you will pass a stringent drug test, whether you're a firefighter or stepping on the scales in the UFC, is a huge kind of, you know, label for people to identify and go, okay, phew, 4,000 CBD companies, I can trust this one. So I would just love to kind of give you the microphone for people that are terrified of CBD, terrified of failing drug tests. And you can, by all means, you know, mention Charlotte's web CBD specifically. How, how do we rebuild that trust again? How do we get people to realize that, look, this is, as you said, this isn't the marijuana plant. This isn't high levels of THC. This is a supplementation that will bolster your wellness and then enable you to sleep better, to move better, which in turn will just be a kind of a um, uh, force multiplier in your own physical and mental health. Sure. So, yep, I was one of the founders of Charlotte's Web and they used my daughter's name in the company. We I'm one of the founders of the realm of caring. That was the 501c3, just to kind of help the families that were moved. How it started was to help these people moving here. And then I started the Coalition for Access Now, which is where I work. So that's why I do. That's all I do now is the is the political stuff. But Charlotte's Web recently um, got the NSF for sports certification. So it's really it's heartening to hear you say that you read labels and you know these things, because I kind of wonder sometimes if people don't care you know if they really care what they're taking and putting in their bodies i care but I, you can't care for somebody right they have to care for themselves and i feel like that's only going to happen if someone gets hurt and then we you know there's a fear based decision there like i could get hurt i have to now care and then it's probably too late but so they did the real responsible thing and that's one of the companies already operating as a dietary supplement anyway they don't have to it's not the law yet but they're doing that and they went for this nsf for sport very, very stringent and difficult and expensive and tedious and slow certification process. And they passed, they just did a, um, a, um, they come in and they, and they recertify you and they do a, they, they come in and they study your lab and they go through you with a fine tooth comb and they passed with a hundred percent. And so they, um, what that ended up allowing them to do is one, prove the validity and the, how clean and safe their product is but it allowed them to partner with major league baseball. So it was the first time major league, a sporting agency, an entire, the entire agency for sport had partnered with a CBD company. And, and like I said, you know, <laughs> they had me come and throw the first pitch out at Yankee stadium in the playoffs in the fall. I don't know if you, I don't know if you saw that. Um, hey, I got it in his glove. Oh, you did? <laughs> I, I didn't bounce it. I got it in his mitt. But it, so it was a really cool moment to see the whole thing almost come full circle. And it wasn't just about the cameras and that stuff for me. It was about going from having my kid taken out of my home by law enforcement, forgiving her the same thing we're talking about right now, for having Major League Baseball backing its players. And the reason that they did this um, <clears throat> was because they know it's a an alternative to opioids and they know their players are playing injured or post-surgery or pre-surgery and they know that they 
this isn't a functioning thing. You can't be a professional athlete if you're taking addictive substances. And so they know this is an anti-inflammatory. They researched the company. They looked at all of their products and stats and they backed them. They backed their NSF sport products for their players. And I work with the chief science officer for MLB and I work with their lobbyists in, in Washington. And they all agree that this should be a supplement but they stood up first to back their players. Like, we know you're using this. And if you're not, you probably should be. And we want some, some health options for you for, for other, you know, and I'm not going to make medical claims on what this does. I'm not a doctor, but I, we know it has anti-inflammatory properties and that can work in many functions in your body. It could just work on mental acuity and focus besides sleep and loss of information, inflammation from an injury. So anyway, that was kind of a cool moment for me simply because it validated everything I, I've done. Um, I'm not a criminal. In fact, the you know the Yankees are out there playing and using this. It was kind of you know it just kind of was cool, almost full circle. We're almost full circle, and I, I was really proud to um, see that partnership come together. That's amazing. I mean, I think this is this is what I want from these conversations is for people to understand the origin story the genesis and and the why behind it and then take a step back and go wait a second so i can with a prescription i can take opiates and benzos on shift but i can't take as you said a, a basically a, something that will boost a cannabinoid system that i actually have in my body and the one analogy i use as a firefighter is when we have a, a car accident we have what's called cribbing so we'll use the airbags or the tools and we'll raise the car up and we'll put two by fours so if it happens to slip, it doesn't come down on the person who's trapped underneath. And that's what I see as CBD. It's not a magic pill. It's not a, you know, a magic bullet. It's literally cribbing. So for example, you're stuck in this cycle where you can't sleep. You're kind of hypervigilant. It allows you to kind of calm that, uh, that, that nervous system a little bit. And then you start sleeping better. As you start sleeping better, you start healing or you've got an injury. It's not, you know, a magic painkiller. But it, it dulls that the inflammatory response a little bit. It takes away some of that anxiety around your injury. You're able to do a little bit more in PT, and then you start healing better. Or, as you said, in a more acute version, you're you know maybe on chemo and your your diet is. I mean, your appetite is gone. Maybe you're a pediatric seizure patient. Now you can start messing. We're not messing, but choosing a, a different. Um, intensity of that, a medical grade, you know, whatever mixture that you choose. And now you can go down that road as well. But just the, as you said, the wellness, you don't have to be hurt for CBD. You don't have to be, you know, Charlotte to take CBD. I think what we've realized is it's, you know, I take a daily multivitamin because I know that all those, those letter vitamins are going to do good things in their own way. And to me, CBD is another adjunct. I take mine at night. Um, and it helps me wind down and I, I usually have a great night's sleep. And for us on shift, you know, you can take it to deal with the shift, you know, with, with the ups and downs on a shift. And then it'll have a different effect when you're back home on your day off to actually sleep in your own bed and down regulate. Yep. And you're not going to test positive for THC, which is the intoxicating part. It's, but the point is, is like, okay, so James, when you take it daily, do you feel euphoric? Do you feel intoxicated or do you feel like you couldn't drive a car? You know what I mean? You might feel something, but but are you you know are you feeling impaired in, in, in any way? No, I mean sometimes you feel more relaxed, which is always a good thing, you know. But I mean not in a like you said, not in a psychoactive way, just in a down regulation way. But that's that's the point is 
as you said, the, the hemp that has the 0.3%, they, you know, people are worried about that being tested for and that in itself. I mean, I think they're slowly starting to review even the marijuana side now because they're realizing that for responders, there's a benefit, but people are terrified of that. So then you choose the, you know, zero THC option where now that's, you know, as you said, NSF, this is not going to, um, you're, you're going to be able to take any workplace drug test and it's guaranteed to be completely fine because they are not testing for CBD because, as you said, it's a dietary supplement. You know, THC is another entire thing. And obviously, in larger amounts in the human body, that may well, you know, cause an issue. But with CBD and the NSF, you know, certification, that tells a police officer, a firefighter, a dispatcher, a corrections officer, a paramedic, member of the military that you are completely safe taking this and you take away that anxiety and actually start improving your life. I was having, before that NSF, that national science uh, certification, I was having these secret, I won't name anybody around the country, conversations with firefighters who who wanted to talk about it because maybe they had had a seizure or maybe they wanted something else for their migraines or whatever medical stuff for their opioids or their surgeries. And my husband's a firefighter. <clears throat> so I'm married to it now. I'm married to a firefighter, <laughs> divorced and remarried. And um, he's, he's medically retired. And so I'm sure he's not going to enjoy me talking about this, but I have to watch him to struggle. He's had nine, eight surgeries and was medically retired. And, um, you know, he struggles to get out of bed. And so he's has much more freedom to use this now than he did when he was on the fire department risking a, a potential drug test. But now that they have these products that are, in a safer NSF and major league baseball is taking them, you know, it kind of seems silly. These conversations I have with these firefighters who were like, what do you, you know, what do you think? Don't tell anyone we're talking. I want to learn more about this. Am I going to get test positive on a drug test pre before the THC free stuff, you know? And it's like, yeah, you might like a third, I think a third of people test positive a third, you know, don't, I don't know that. I think it's like half and half on a high dose of high CBD. You, you might test positive, but on the NSF stuff, you know, it's a much different conversation now, but it's, um, it's, 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 it's outrageous. You know, even the testing, the, the THC testing, that test is highly unscientific. You know, you, I think it's two, three, four weeks. Some people will test positive after having used a THC product. So you'll test positive. It doesn't mean you're high on the job or high driving around, but that needs to get, you know, hammered down that testing exists the accurate testing is just expensive and, and they use, they're using the wrong old testing to do, to do this and to base a whole police department or fire department or military off of something that's just very outdated and inaccurate is, um, and here's a potential tool for their, all their problems. It's unfortunate. So yeah, we're absolutely trying to change that and, and, and give these, not get people high, just give them a, a tool to stop suffering. Well, it's funny you say about workplace testing. Um, the reason why I didn't become a firefighter in the UK is because I failed, again, using air quotes, the color vision book, you know, with all the little dots and the numbers. And then fast forward years and years later, I ended up challenging it and naming things in the doctor's office. And he's like, oh, you're fine. And then check. You realize, okay, again, that that's just giving you some data on, you know, what deficiencies is it? Red, green, is it? But you're not like walking around completely black and white or perfect color, there's a spectrum in between. And even the psychological tests, I think it's the Montana personal or personality assessment test, something like that. I've asked my psychology friends and they're like, yeah, that was never 
meant to be a standalone test. It's used with a gamut of other tests in forensic psychology to create an entire kind of view of a person. And it's not a, oh, yes, you passed, you'll be a good firefighter or you're a raving lunatic. You can't use that test. So again, here we are, you know, we're forgetting the question, the very things that we believe for so long. So I think this is a big paradigm shift or awakening of our generation now is that we have to turn around and question things. And if it's valid, you go, oh, okay, beautiful. I'm going to keep doing that thing then. But if you go... Drug prohibition was started by Harry Angslinger, who, after the f- the absolute failure of alcohol prohibition, had to justify his job, and he was a screaming racist, and was the man behind Reefer Madness, and that's why we have this now. Maybe the war on drugs isn't a good idea. You know, maybe the CBD with zero THC is what I should be t- trusting, and the opioids and benzos that my doctor throws at me, maybe that's the one I should be questioning now. Right. But you're crazy for even questioning them. Like you're made to be a, you know, but yeah, the whole thing is, is outrageous. When you, when you look at it, people are in jail for this. Did you in Singapore, they hung a guy for trying to sell, for for trying to sell marijuana for selling marijuana. And just last week, because their laws are very strict and he broke the law, but it's, I mean, it's, you know, the stigma behind this, that war on drugs as outrageous as it was, was effective and it worked and we believed it. And so the, the hardest thing to do is to change a person's mind. If they believe something to be true, the hardest thing to do is to go forward and change their mind. And that's what we're up against. Like <laughs> no big deal, but it's, it's, it's difficult, but it's um, doable and it doesn't have to directly affect you suffering or someone you love suffering for you to change your mind. We just have to be open-minded about this and, I think it just starts with a real pragmatic approach. Like we can talk about these philosophies we have and and how Western medicine is a disaster and people need to open their minds. But I think it's just going to be done the long, slow, scientific way through these good companies doing good science, third party science through through research centers and, and doing the things like NSF certification and just getting this out there with no adverse, no serious adverse events reported. And, and I just think that's the way to do it. To, to change someone's mind is going to take some, some data and science and it's slow and it's tedious and it's expensive. That's the only way to regulation. And I'm willing, I'm in this, like I'm willing to do this. I vowed to help these people. Like I said, I know too much. I vowed to not stop until this is complete. And we're almost there. I should. I think we'll have this done by December. We certainly probably won't get it done next year in a general election. And so I need to get this done this this December. But but that's what we're fighting for. You know, kids with epilepsy, they have access to this. And if they don't, they have access to a pharmaceutical now. Now it's like we said, as athletes and veterans and these people deserve to know one that there's there's an army of good, solid people working on this, and we're going to get this done. And two whether they take it or whether they've heard of it at some point, it's going to come across everyone's plate and they're going to have to decide if they want to try this, if they need it, if they're suffering and they have a conflict that's has a solution, they have to decide to, to do this. And now the information is out there. It's not, it's not like um, real fringe anymore. It's out there. And and that's because good people are, are working on it. And that's because there's an industry that's profitable. And that's the only way this makes sense. Unfortunately is as long as they can make money, no one's going to do anything for free. I mean, I will because <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> my last two brain cells, but I'm willing to do it because I care. Like, this is very, very worthwhile. It's very worthwhile. And I know that it's a rare opportunity 
that a lot of people don't have is to work on something meaningful to them. And fire was like that for me or diving was like that for me. And, and this is another way I can be of service and do something useful and not just sit in a cubicle and hate my job and hate my life. I actually get to work on something really cool that can change, can change people's daily lives. And so, so I'm not going to stop until this is finished, but. Well, so Charlotte went from literally palliative, you know, palliative care, just waiting for the day when, when she passed to having nine extra years or nine, you know, years that she should have had. We talk about science. We talk about questioning things in that middle ground of truth. 2020 rolls around, you know, a virus starts sweeping through the earth that the two sides, the two extremes seem to have the giant, you know, mouthpieces. But ultimately, this is a, a virus that's very real. And certainly if you are immunocompromised or you have some sort of underlying issue, it can be even more deadly. So walk me through early 2020, you know, where was, where was she at physically, mentally? And then, you know, let's talk about, you know, one of the real tragedies that did come out of COVID. Yeah. So not my favorite topic, but I'm happy to I'm happy. <laughs> um, Charlotte went nine years. She was never on another pharmaceutical. She took Charlotte's Web CBD every day and she never went to the hospital. She never had another hospital trip. So I don't, I know that may, is hard to uh, understand, but if you could, we were a high, high medical situation. She wasn't going to live through this. She wasn't going to live to adulthood. And the power of never having visited a hospital <laughs> and never having to go on not one single pharmaceutical, no rescue drugs, nothing is outrageous just for this syndrome. And so, so I am very, very fortunate that I got that time with her. I got to know her. I got to meet her. I didn't, the first four years of her life were not her. And so for those till she was 13, we really got to meet this crazy, funny, interesting human being. So I'm really grateful for that. 2020, <clears throat> March rolled around. Um, we we all came down with COVID. What was we thought was COVID? We weren't tested. There was no testing back then. So we were quarantined in the house. <laughs> we were very, very sick. We were giving IVs to each other. My husband, paramedic, taught me how to do IVs. So I'm doing them on the kids, him, Charlotte, the whole family. The hospital's like, don't come in. We're full of these COVID patients and, um, and we can't test you. And kids aren't getting it. So you guys are probably fine. Well, Charlotte had it for four weeks. We all had it for about four weeks and it really just sapped everything, everything out of her. And she <clears throat> got pneumonia um, from the, from the COVID. And she had it the, I don't even say she had it the worst, but, but she was the most affected by it because she had a pre-existing condition and it just took, it just took every last bit of, of what she had left. So she went to the hospital for a seizure, um, for a, a large seizure. She was dehydrated and she had fluid in her lungs. So she was, she had pneumonia, went to the hospital and she ended up passing away and dying on a ventilator on the COVID floor, but untested. So we don't know for sure what she had, but it, she had a COVID doctor. We were in quarantine on the COVID floor and I was allowed to be there with her. But um, unfortunately, because it was a quarantine situation, she, she passed away in April, on April 7th. Um, so it's tragic. Um, she didn't suffer. She had a seizure and didn't suffer, but we did you know, she, she died in the home is what I think happened, but we kept her on life support in the hospital for, for a day. <clears throat> but I feel like she died in her sleep with a seizure here. She just didn't have anything left after, after that virus and pneumonia. And it was, it was tough. I mean, I think like, 
you know, you've, I don't know how many people you've ran on, but my husband and I were doing, you know, CPR on her here. That was three years ago. It was tough. That was the toughest call (laughs) he's probably ever had. And, um, and it was, it was, uh, it was just surprising, I think, because she was so healthy. She was doing so well. And, but it, but it shows you people who have these, these, these uh, immune disorders and pre-existing conditions and underlying stuff and drugs they might be taking, it affected different people differently. And, um, you can't discount that. So, so yeah, it was, it was, it was tragic. Um, but I look at it as a, as a positive of those. I look at the nine years, I look at the solution we had for her and I'm just thankful she didn't suffer for those nine years and then just die of Gervais syndrome. You know what I mean? Like she got to have this really cool life. She got to make all kinds of change throughout the world. And it was like, just like a really, really interesting story. And I'm just very grateful for all that time with her, but it was super tragic. And I mean, it's funny because she has this life limiting illness. You think I'd be the most prepared. You think we would be the most prepared for her death for the eventuality of that. And it was just like, major. It was just major. And then you see thousands of people dying, you know, each week, each month, and you just see everyone's going through this, this trauma. It was, um, this is heavy. Like those years were just a really heavy time. One cool thing that came out of, of all of that was the governor of Colorado Polis declared April 7th, the day she died, um, Charlotte Figgy day here in the state of Colorado, just because of she, she made so much change. She advocated for so much change with her little special needs life. And so every year on April 7th, we celebrate. I mean, I celebrate her every day, but every, every day, the whole state celebrates Charlotte Figgy day. And so that's like, what a cool honor, you know, that, that they saw it. And, and I think what I take from that is, is people think you can't make change or your life doesn't matter. or You're just this one little cog in this huge wheel of society. Well, she was a special needs kid you know, that probably had, there was no hope for her. There was no hope that she would amount to anything or mean anything or do anything in the world. And even Charlotte's little life for 13 years did more than I can say I've ever done in my life. So it's like, I see it as an inspirational thing and um, a lot of good came out of it. To lose a child, especially as you are, you know, so enthused and optimistic after the treatments and her not having seizures not going to a hospital anymore and then to lose it right at the beginning of 2020 with all the shutdowns and isolation and lack of communication with a lot of people what were some of the tools that you and your husband and your family used to get through that very traumatic time especially when both of you were carrying traumas as as responders as well yep yeah and and like i say every first responder has ptsd i i I'm convinced of it. And every special needs parent probably has PTSD. I'm talking severe PTSD. And, and so what I did was um, I used EMDR therapy and I used this special, this fella, we were zooming, which is crazy to do that kind of therapy um, on a zoom call, (laughs) but it was really effective. Um, He, he was sort of famous for he he was at the Oklahoma City bombing. He was at Scotland, school shooting, Sudan. You know, he did real, real traumatic things where kids saw their parents' heads, you know, beheaded and and machete and, and tribal wars and school shootings and that sort of thing. So he was very familiar with working with police and fire and military and um, like heavy, heavy duty trauma. 
and, um, and big tough guys, right? Like we talked about in the beginning, like big tough guys who, who certainly don't need counseling, you know, for something that made him a little sad at work. Well, he perfected this and he said, absolutely. And it's probably going to take you this many sessions with me and this is how it's going to work. And, and you're going to get out of it, what you put into it. And I was like, I was traumatized by the whole thing. I mean, I'm a tough, I'm a pretty tough cookie, but I was having really traumatic nightmares, like dreams where I was terrified to go to sleep at night because I had, my brain had chosen to remember the death as a trauma. So every night I'd, I'd relive some way she would die with right there within my reach, but I couldn't help her in some new way every night, some horrible new, like a horror movie, but scarier, like every single night. So I just stopped sleeping. And, um, and I really realized I needed to deal with this. So he helped me. And like I said, you, I, I went full all the way in. I mean, I went all the way in willing to do the work and I highly recommend, I highly, highly recommend it. If you have had traumatic events or even childhood stuff, it doesn't have to be a one singular event, but it absolutely helped me. And I think that being vulnerable and, and going through it, that was an absolutely huge, useful tool. I take CBD. That was, is a very useful tool for me. And, um, and now I'm, you know, I don't have that, like it's hard enough to deal with the loss of a child as it is to deal with it the way I was choosing, I guess, subconsciously to deal with it was just making it, uh, I don't even know if I would have survived much longer going through the way I was dealing with this trauma. I mean, it was absolutely, and I know firefighters, <clears throat> I was just talking to my husband about this. There's firefighters. We know many, many, many that have had trauma, had to quit, had to get off the the force, the fire department because of like, me, like emotional and mental stress of it. And, and it's, and you can't, you know, they can't hear sirens and they can't just like veterans of war. You can't, your fireworks, you know, these are major things. There are tools to help, to help yourself get through this stuff. And I'm a total testament to that, to that. And it worked. And I, and I've solved that problem, that one problem, major problem. And now I can just deal with, you know, death of a kid, like a normal person. <laughs> yeah. I've heard nothing but good things about EMDR when it comes to an acute event. So obviously, you know, literally the day that she died or, you know, some of these tragic calls that we run on. So I think another thing as well is the more time goes on, the more the toolbox expands. And so we've obviously been talking about hemp and CBD specifically, but I'm hoping that we're going to see an expansion of MDMA-led therapy, ketamine, you know, psilocybin, some of these other, you know, whether it's um, you know, pharmaceutical or plant medicines, because again, that's another entire subset of mental health therapy that appears to be incredibly effective, as you said, with the work that you got to put in with it, but is also illegal in this country. So the irony that you serve as a policeman or a firefighter or, you know, in military uniform, and then you have to go to Mexico or Colombia to get therapy for the thing that you did for your country. I think, you know, I think we're moving there, but it's another another irony. So it kind of ties well, into Colorado's this conversation. Moving. You can look at certain states and it's going to happen that way. Colorado's moving forward with psychedelics. And um, yeah, it's really interesting <laughs> to see to see that psychedelics will go faster federally than cannabis is my pr- prediction. I don't know. I don't know if that's how, if I, that's how it should be, but I'm just seeing that's moving much faster. Um, <clears throat> I think people care deeply about our veterans and government employees and our military. I think the government cares deeply about that. I, I do think that there's more stigma around cannabis 
than psychedelics because it's new. If we let it simmer too long, we'll start some more on drug stigma with psychedelics. But for now, if we can, if you can push that through, we can, we can get that. But I think there's also like a negative stigma. Like we started this conversation with today with mental illness, like you're weak, it's ugly. We don't want to talk about it. We don't know how to fix it. And there's a stigma. There's definitely a stigma around that. And um, so if you can reposition it as something that we have tools for and it's fixable and it's, you can work on this stuff and it's not something to be afraid of that police have mental illness and, and it, you know, and, and have them accept it and not tough guy their way through this. Um, yeah. I think, I think there's solutions here, but it's tough. It's a tough road when there's stigmas. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing is just seeing it as a natural reaction to the horrible shit that you see. You know, we think of this, you know, what's wrong with me? It's like you just saw a car burned up with two adults and two children in it. People aren't supposed to see that. So what's going on is, you know, do you have a, a strong foundation where you were fortunate enough to have an upbringing A or have you got a foundation upbringing B where you were kind of, you know, shaken as you mature into an adult and now you put this uniform on and your foundation, you know, isn't as stable. So that's why you look to your left and this person is doing okay and this person's in tears or rocking in the corner. These are natural reactions depending on your resilience. And this again ties into all these tools, whether it's EMDR, whether it's CBD, whether it's psychedelics or, you know, just clean eating in general that you can absolutely do the work, get over, you know what I mean, in a positive way, some of the mental hurdles that you have and actually, you know, be be better, be an even better version of yourself because you've navigated that trauma. And it, and it probably starts with people like you and what you're doing and bringing, bringing things to light, just talking about trauma and talking about mental disorders and mental illness because people can't fix it if they don't admit there's a problem. If the fire department doesn't admit that this is a an epidemic you have nothing to solve you have nothing to solve for so it's first just bringing awareness to the fact that there's a problem that exists and there's solutions out there absolutely well i want to go to some closing questions just before i do so that we stay on on the topic with charlotte you talked about being in dc and wanting help as far as moving an initiative forward and in our discussion, you said that usually it's only 60 emails or texts that can actually push an issue to the top of the pile. So if you want to expand on that and, and how people listening can actually help, because this is going to benefit my community in so many different ways. And I want to make sure that we as a profession or professions, plural, can roll up our sleeves and go, okay, this is something I can actually physically do to move towards these holistic, you know, health um, plant medicines that are truly going to make a difference in my life and my career. Yep. Yeah. So I've heard repeatedly in Washington, DC, that if a Senator or a house member, hears something 60 times, six, zero, that is a top of the pile issue. They will work on that as a very, very important uh, issue. 60. So <laughs> the whole state of Texas, if that, if one senator in Texas hears some an email or a phone call sixty times from sixty constituents, that has now come come to the top of their pile. That's it. So I don't know. That was outrageous to me. That was surprising, and I keep hearing it. So I know that I know this to be true. And then I went and implemented this and and found sixty people to reach out. And sure enough, it's true. And and that's sad. Um, I don't know if it's intimidation that constituents don't know enough about a topic to call their 
representative or if they don't have time and can't be ours to deal with it or <laughs> they don't care they assume someone else will deal with it i don't know what i don't know the the reason but i know how easy people can make it to click this button send a pre-written letter um but the most effective thing isn't to do those take action links and send a fake you know i could write a letter for everyone to send and it's a, a, a you know it's not as effective as them <clears throat> calling and telling their story and you don't need to be informed trust me sadly to say our legislators are are less informed than you would think about these topics and they they're hard working they're thoughtful they have to deal with many many different issues and you'd be surprised how educated the average constituent is but they really just want to hear our stories. So you call up your, you look for your person, who's your representative. You look for your two senators and you ask them to pass CBD reform is, is what I'm asking for. Um, we're doing this more because I've seen how ineffective that is, how people aren't willing to, to do that work until there's a threat or a fear that this is going away, that their trusted thing that's working for them is going away. Then they'll act. Right now there's access. We've, it's legal in 50 states. We're halfway there in Washington. And, and so people don't feel like there's a, a worry or concern or they need to act. And the lobbyists will do it. But we could do a lot faster if people would reach out. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so you talked about that standard letter. Obviously, you want someone to write their own. Where yeah. can they find that so at least they understand what they're asking for and the information behind it and then, then reword it themselves? So the best thing to do is to go to the website. It's coalitionforaccess.org. Coalitionforaccess.org is the nonprofit. And you can you can use that language. You can go to, you can just Google who how to find my representative and how to find my senator in Washington. Um, you each state has two senators and each district, your zip code, your address has you have your one US congressman. And just send them a letter and ask them to co-sponsor. HR 1629 is what we're trying to do. And if we could just have people reach out and do that, um, it doesn't need to be. You don't have to be a lobbyist. You don't have to be a CBD expert. You are just saying in the shortest amount of words possible, please support this legislation. This would solve our regulatory problems. Beautiful. Well, I'll put the link to that on this webpage as well. So for people listening, if you go to jamesgearing.com, come to this, uh, this podcast episode, you'll be able to find it right there. And all you got to do is click on it then. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for so much for giving us a voice. I have been, we're not the loud squeaky wheel and we haven't been doing a lot of media because I'm just working, we're just working on pushing this. And then you realize like people still don't know what this is and what this isn't. And it's very important, like first to educate it, but it's hard. It's hard to do both. I could spend 90% of my time as a nonprofit fundraising, or I could spend 100% of my time just, just working on the bill. And so it's hard to do both. And at the speed that we're trying to get this done, I can't do both. So I'm just working. I'm just head down 200 miles an hour, laying the tracks as the train goes, as Jared Stanley always says. <laughs> and we're just trying to get this done. So we're not loud and squeaky and asking for anything. I'm not asking for money. I'm not asking for much. But first, I think that people should know that this exists, that there's solutions for their problems and and there's good people working on this. Absolutely. And I think that's the problem as well is you find yourself in a bit of an echo chamber. So you look around and go, oh, everyone gets it. And then you step outside and you're like, ah, no. Yeah, you know? so. <laughs> that's the truth. <laughs> but it's people like you that provide these platforms and, and spend your time giving us 
some light and shedding some, some light on the information on this. So I really appreciate what you're doing. I, I really, really appreciate I bet your mind is a vault of information because you get to have so many different people, experts in their field on this, on your show. And that that's an interesting job, but it's really appreciated. Beautiful. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting because you have all these people and it's a Venn diagram and then you realize where everything intersects is a is a real real truth I mean everyone has their truths within themselves but you know and CBD is definitely one of them whether it's Eric uh, Goodman from Foundation talking about the uh, cannabinoid system and how you know movement can also improve that or whether it's like I said Gregory Smith or Bonnie Goldstein talking about you know what they've done you know in adjunct to to your work to, to Charlotte's uh, genesis so I want to get just to a few closing questions. The first one I love to ask, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Well, I'm writing mine right now. So maybe I'll come back on. Oh, definitely. <laughs> I'll give you that title soon enough. Please. Yeah, no, absolutely. Open invitation. All right. What about um, a movie and or documentary? Oh, that's a good one. Um, well, I, I watch a lot of documentaries. Now, do you mean on this topic? Any topic. Uh, if it's on this topic, you should watch the Weed series of documentaries. Like I say, they're going to do a bunch more. I'm going to be in my walker, a little old lady filming Weed 9 <laughs> if they keep doing them. Um, another one that is more about the Coalition for Access Now was a, a Dateline documentary with Harry Smith, and that's called Growing Hope. And you can find that online. And they did a, it's like a short docu-series, little six minute segments. And they followed some of the coalition moms in Virginia. And they followed them passing their state law. And those people came and worked in Washington DC and helped me on the federal law. And it's just a cool way to see how the process worked, see what they're up against. And it's a, it was tear, it's a tearjerker, that one. So, so that was a really cool, that was a really cool documentary, but that's around this topic. But I, I, yeah, I, I've watched every documentary. I'm like a docu nerd. So <laughs> I just watched that Vulcan, Vulcanologist one. Have you seen that? No, I haven't. Volcanoes. That was good. Uh, Fire of Love, I think it's called. It's about this couple and they, they are Vulcanologists and they travel to volcanoes. It's a love story. It was really good. I think it, it was a front runner in the documentary of the year last year. Okay, I have to watch that. I did watch the one on the explosion in New Zealand. It was one of the islands right off the coast. And that was yeah. extremely sad. Yeah, the, yeah, that. And then the there was a an earthquake one, right? The earthquake tsunami. Anyway, we can I could go on <laughs> about documentaries. <laughs> There's right. too many like things that actually happen in real life, and truth is certainly stranger than fiction. A hundred percent. Absolutely. I just watched an incredible one and three, three part series on the Boston bombings. It really uh, very, very good documentary. That's on my list. I keep seeing it on yeah. my TV pop up. Worth the watch. Definitely. All right. Well, the next question, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Oh, that's a great. Yeah. So um, my husband is, is working heavily with the fire department in this, trying to work in this arena. So you could have him on, um, we're working with the di many different fire departments and we're working with wounded warriors and trying to get them involved in Washington to help move the needle. So I work with Jose in DC uh, he's a friend and he runs the wounded warriors project. And I just think that from a veteran standpoint, he's really standing up for that organization. So I, I think if you could, you know, somehow get some people from Wounded Warriors um, involved. That would be, I think that would like pull this full circle. 
Beautiful. Thank you. All right. Well, then the very last question for you, make sure people know where to find you. What do you do to decompress? What do I do? I ride dirt bikes. <laughs> I, um, I rock climb. Um, you know, I think, and I think that you see that a lot, you know, with people who, who work in that difficult kind of a job for me now, these days, it's, it's not fire diving. I work in Washington, DC, which is its own set of, you know, difficulties, um, mentally it's frustrating. Um, but I, I ride dirt. I have, we have seven motorcycles and, and so we like to ride off road. Um, I jump horses, I rock climb. And so I do some, I really need the, my decompression time to be kind of hardcore, um, physically, so I can, so I can get back in the mix of it. But my time in DC is pretty like, we'll do eight to 10 miles a day of walking just to just going to meetings. Like I'll fly in and just, just do, just do, just shake hundreds of hands till my toenails are falling off. And so my decompression time is at the end of the day in Washington, I'll go run after doing eight miles on the Hill, I'll go run the mall. I'll go run all the monuments. And so I'll go to the Vietnam monument and the world war II monument at night I don't know if you've ever done that. I highly recommend it. It's very safe because it's protected by the police and it's just cool to see it at night. So I'll go run, you know, at night after work just to decompress. Brilliant. Yeah, no, I've been there in a day. I've never been at night. So, I, but my son, my son hasn't been to DC for a while. So I think he went when he was very, very young. So it's something I want to do. Obviously there's a lot of, uh, a lot of military members that come on here and, uh, you know, I want to keep him embedded and he's actually in the JROTC program too. So I think you'd be even more invested now. There's something about the, how the artists set those, those monuments up that are very different at night and how they lit them at night. That's just like, you'll just sit there in tears. I mean, I don't know how you could see that at night when there's no one there, you know, you might be the only person there. And just the way the artists had the lights, I can't explain it. You just have to have that experience. I had my first time seeing them was at night. So <clears throat> I can only attest to that. But that's it was really moving. Beautiful. I'll make sure it's on the list again. Thank you. All right. Well, then just to make sure. So the uh, coalition for access.org is the website for the coalition. Are there any other places online or on social media people can find you? Yeah, we're on Twitter and I'll always, whenever a co-sponsor jumps onto the bill to co-sponsor and support our work, we thank them and we would really appreciate people just, just uh, finding us on Twitter and just to help move the needle, <clears throat> get this over the finish line. That would be really helpful. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Beautiful. Well, Paige, I want to say thank you so much. We've been all over the place. You know, we explored some areas that obviously, you know, are, are pulling up some emotions, but it's such a powerful kind of... Uh, chronological journey from you as a first responder early in life to the amazing things that Charlotte has done and like I said everyone in in this home that I'm sitting in now has benefited from that story as well but to hear where she was the the nine years of thriving that she had and then you know the legacy she's left behind I want to thank you so so much for being so generous with your time today you're welcome yeah thank you very much for for having me and supporting this Support just just supporting this and taking it yourself and, and yeah I really appreciate the that what you do. Thank you.